You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. We're completely losing, you know, what once was and erasing our opportunity to learn from those things. The other thing that we're losing from displacing people is a wealth of idea and perspective. Money and people are moving into Seattle at an unprecedented rate. Recent census data suggests the population has increased by over a thousand people per week. In an apparent effort to keep pace with the growth, Seattle has led the nation in the number of cranes in the sky two years in a row. Though significant attention is given to the number of people moving in, IRS data shows thousands of people are also moving out. I'm Jeff Shulman, and today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast features interviews with two people who have chosen to leave Seattle, a place they called home for many years. Today's episode also features an interview with the director of Seattle's Office of Planning and Community Development. He'll describe what the city is doing to avoid losing more of its longtime residents. If Seattle has changed to a point that these residents feel the need to leave, what might happen to you and your life in this city? By understanding why some residents are saying goodbye to Seattle, you could work together to ensure that Seattle maintains a community for you and those you care about as it continues undergoing its rapid transformation. This is the third season of Seattle Growth Podcast, a season focused on the physical transformation of the city. How much is it changing? Who's driving the changes? How are people reacting to the changes, and what can you do to influence them? Previously in the season, you heard from real estate developers giving an inside look into their process. I look for good streets, you know, streets that have great trees and wide sidewalks. And I love on-street parking, even though, you know, I'm as big an advocate as anyone for getting out of our cars, but it just creates another layer between the traffic and the pedestrian. And the idea being you have smaller restaurants and that intimacy that you get out of that really does, you know, kind of encourage that local neighborhood vibe and that feel. Last week, you heard from Seattle natives with more than a combined century of living in Seattle. You heard Damon Bomar. That culture's just not there anymore. I mean, we still have the Emoja Fest and and that parade, but it used to be a thing. The Langston Hughes Performing Arts Play used to be down at Paramount, used to pack the theater. You know, all of these community-oriented events are gone. You heard Wendy Colgan. Everything feels pretty shiny and pretty corporate. Um, Even the restaurant culture that once was around doesn't feel very varied anymore. And as we transition to today's episode, we hear from people who have decided to leave Seattle. They stand in contrast to the many residents who see positives as more money and people flow into the city. Residents such as the owner of Schultz's Sausage, Don Schultz. As more money comes in, higher tax base, and we're sales tax based here in Seattle, as well as property tax. So both those should rise incrementally as we get more people. And with that growth, it should be a better place to live. And Chris DeVore a key figure in Seattle's tech scene. As someone who grew up here and lived here during the downturn with Boeing in the 70s, when the billboard of, well, the last person out of Seattle, please turn out the lights, the, the opposite of growth is is decline. And we don't want to be Detroit, right? So so growth, you have to be thoughtful about managing it. But growth is something that we all want. And Anne Fennessy, a resident and business owner in Pioneer Square, who has also noted positive changes in her neighborhood. I think it's made Pioneer Square healthier. Uh, less, it, We're still gritty, which we got to keep. But um, we, it has made us healthier and more stable. But some residents, such as city council member Shama Sawant, see Seattle as losing something as it grows. Seattle is losing what 
makes it Seattle. I mean, what people love about Seattle is partly the the lands the natural landscape, but for a lot of people, what matters is the diversity. If we want to hold on to our fellow community members who have helped make Seattle what it is today, we need to understand more why people choose to leave. To hear one such perspective, join me as I sit down with Cole Austin. I am here at Impact Hub Seattle with the New Tech Seattle Meetup with Cole Austin. Cole, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, no problem, man. Uh, so why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm from uh, Boston originally. I moved uh, to Seattle in the sixth grade um, in 2000, and uh, I believe that was three. Um, did high school, did middle school here, did high school here, graduated, went to school in D.C. Um, for, for, uh, for a little upwards of six years and came back out here last year. And where did you go to high school and middle school? I went to Madrona Middle School, uh, K-8, and then I went to, um, uh, Howard, I went to uh, Garfield High School. And tell me a little bit about the Seattle you knew as growing up in middle school and in high school here. I was raised in the Central District. Uh, the Central District was, uh, uh, it was a close-knit community, close-knit community. Um, it was a lot of, um, it was larger African-American in population in, in terms of demographics. Um, and what about it? There was a lot of local, I always remember a lot of local businesses. There's a lot of locally um, black-owned businesses and stuff like that. And um it's a very close-knit community. Were there any businesses or community forums that you remember most? Uh, I remember Sam's, uh, Sam's Coffee Shop on Cherry and MLK. Um, that was the first place that we went to when I, when I moved here. When I moved here, it was the first place that we went to. It was a black-owned coffee shop. Um, and it was on a strip with a lot of uh, black-owned businesses, such as uh, the historic Catfish Corner, um, and a host of different, you know, Ethiopian restaurants and stuff like that. But that's the one that probably sticks out the most. And, and have you been back to that area where you were grow, where you grew up? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's completely changed. And how has it changed? Um, it's changed in terms of uh, demographic. Um, there's been a widespread gentrification, uh, specifically in the central in the central district in the central area, um, and some surrounding parts in Seattle. Um, and uh, businesses have changed. People have moved away. Um, so it's, it's changed, you know, fundamentally, like it's completely different. You know, it's my, my high school is remodeled, a couple million dollar renovations, you know, in terms of that. Um, so it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely been changing a lot. And, and how does it make you feel? How, do you, how are you reacting to those changes? Good and bad. Good and bad. I think more, um, definitely more bad than good. I embrace change. I mean, that's something that I, that I, I pride myself on. It's something that... I think it's most important um, to understand that change is good. Um, where I have a bad taste in my mouth is where I start to understand that people, uh, some, some people in disenfranchised communities don't have the opportunity to make changes for themselves. Um, and sometimes decisions are being made for those disenfranchised people and they end up being displaced, they end up being um, uh, discounted in the conversations around the community and uh, what goes on there. Um, so it's, it's good and bad. What would you like to see going forward to make sure that those who feel disenfranchised can feel a part of the community and a part of the process? Um, inclusion, inclusion in those conversations. Um, and a large part of that comes with the education, with the education component. Um, a lot of people just don't know that these conversations are going on or how to engage in these conversations. Um, so oftentimes they turn a blind eye to it. Um, so going forward, definitely inclusion, but making it a point that uh, people in these communities need that education as well. 
in order to uh, be active members in, the, in, in, those in, the, in those conversations. So when you're in your community as a middle schooler and a high schooler, and you see that the businesses that you shop and spend your money are owned and operated by an African-American, what does that mean to you versus now how there might be a diversity of who's owning the buildings in the places you were raised? Um, you know, pride, pride and an example. You know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm here at Startup Week is because I've saw entrepreneurs who've done it before. And I've, because I've had those examples, it becomes part of my, uh, my future framework. It, it, it becomes part of my, my uh, what I can see as possibility. You know, and it gives you the courage to say that you can do it yourself. Um, so when it's not there, it makes it that much harder um, to put yourself in those shoes and believe and have faith that you can actually achieve those same things. Are there any other ways that seeing the changes in the place where you had some formative years of your life, are there any other ways that that affects you? Yeah, uh, community, community. Um, and I don't hope to be too bleak on this on this whole podcast, but um, the, the lack thereof um, of an inclusive community where I feel comfortable going to my neighborhood bar or, you know, uh, seeing, you know, expensive, really expensive condos, condos that I probably couldn't afford, but other businesses are being pushed out in order for that to happen, that development to happen. Um, it just it makes it a little it makes it tougher it makes it tougher to maintain community because a lot of these people that are being displaced from the central area are being pushed to the outskirts of Seattle um, from Kent to Renton to uh, even as even as far as Olympia um, so it's it's that much harder to kind of feel solidarity and feel a sense of community um, when there's new people coming into the community and we're not engaging. You know, um, I think that comes with engagement. Not to say that you can't make new friends and, and establish a new community um, based on what was already there, but it, it takes engagement. Help somebody understand the importance of going to a coffee shop and seeing other black faces. I mean, again, that speaks to uh, community, community building and engagement. You know, being able to go to your neighborhood coffee shop or even your neighborhood bar, your neighborhood restaurant, you know, being able to see not only faces that look like you, because I don't think that's the most important thing. You know, I think there is, is definitely a large value to diversity. I think that's something that's paramount in understanding empathy is diversity. Um, and not just in terms of race or in sex, but also in terms of perspective. Um, but to answer your question, community, community building um, and to have that solidarity within your community um, it allows you to build pride in your community. Uh, it allows for you to develop trust in your community. It, uh, it allows you to uh, build a loyalty to your community and, 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 and the want to give back to your community. And what does the community lose? What, what is Seattle losing by displacing a large number of people who are here uh, from the early days in the Central District, Madrona, and so on? A couple things. A couple things. Um, we're losing a, a, a very large history component of where Seattle is really coming from and the people that represent that. Um, a lot of times, like if I walk into a, a bar, a lot of people don't understand what that used to be. And that history is lost with every time that we develop because there's no, there's been little to no emphasis on that education um, in the history of that area. We're completely losing, you know, what once was. Um, and, uh, erasing our opportunity to learn from those things. Um, the other thing that we're losing from displacing people 
is a wealth of idea and perspective. Um, you know, again, with diversity, you know, comes better ideas, comes more perspectives. And we miss out on that when people are being pushed out. If you can get a message out to the people of Seattle uh, as they're seeing this growth and perhaps many of them are enjoying it, uh, what would you say? I'm currently moving. So there's, there's that. Where are you moving to? <laughs> Atlanta. Oh, you're getting out of here? Yeah, I'm getting out of here. Okay, so we're, we're going to lose coal uh, in Seattle. Why are you moving? For all of those reasons. Really? For all of those reasons. So if you can get a message out to the people of Seattle of what they could do so that we don't lose more coals in the future, what would you say? Add more voices to the conversation. And do you have any concluding thoughts on the changes you've seen in Seattle? I think growth is always good. Um, I think change is always good. Um, I think for there to be lasting and meaningful change um, and making a, 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 a good transition into change is to always be transparent and to always um, be communicative and understanding. Cole, very nice to meet you. Thank you much for your time. Really appreciate, appreciate it. Appreciate you, man. For sure. To hear the perspective of someone who moved to Renton after many decades in Seattle, join me as I sit down with the historian at the Mount Zion Baptist Church. I am here in Renton with the Reverend Dr. Phyllis Ratcliffe-Beaumonte. Uh, Reverend, thank you for joining me today. You're quite welcome. Why don't we start by having you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, I was born and raised here in Seattle, Washington. My parents came, uh, my mother was four, from Wichita, uh, Kansas, and my dad came when he was about 16 um, from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, they came separately, of course, but uh, they married here in Seattle. And um, I am one of five children. But uh, being born and raised in Seattle was a very interesting experience because um, most of us were post-Depression children, meaning the Great Depression of 29 on up was a, uh, an experience that brought people together. I went through the public school system here in Seattle uh, and graduated from Garfield High School. Um, from there, um, I did not think I was going to uh, go to college because no one had any much money at that time. Uh, but um, what I did was to take a class and got my five credits, and then they said, well, aren't you going to take more uh, courses and, and aren't you going to matriculate? And I said, well, I don't know. But I was blessed to have graduated with a diploma from Garfield. And so from that point on, I began to go to the U and then got my BA, a double major in political science and communications in 1973. From there, I went and I received a master's in public administration from the School of Public Affairs, as it was called then. It's now the Evans School. From there, someone said, you know, you'd make a good teacher. So I doubled back and picked up my <laughs> credentials to be a, a teacher, and I became a school teacher for 23 years for the Seattle Public Schools. I taught high school, American government and the Constitution, U.S. history and language arts. Tell me, what was life like growing up in the Central District? Life was interesting. We didn't know we were poor. You know, everybody seemed to to be. Um, they used to say, you know, now I hear people 
Caucasians, young, old, rich, poor, middle class, all say that we're the greatest, uh, what do they call it, a generation of all time. Because we didn't know we were poor. We were accepting, accepting our, our situation. And uh, we just went about what we had to do. We went to school and we had at the YMCA, it was an African-American YMCA there on 23rd. They had uh, activities for us on the weekend and they had um, the YWCA on 22nd and John, it was called the Phyllis Wheatley. That was an, a branch of the main YWCA. And it was primarily to help us to be um, counseled and to be groomed and 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 so it was it was um, it was a good time so to speak. We had the skating rink there on Twenty Second and Madison, and we had restaurants with good food and you know, and the police that were uh, assigned to that area were African Americans mainly. And I know if I was out later than I should have been, one of them said, what are you doing out? You want me to call your parents? And, and so it was a different type of growing up than it is now, big time. And so when did you start to see the neighborhood that you grew up in uh, start to change? Well, there were two things that happened. One thing was the white flight from Seattle and the evolution of Mercer Island. It wasn't there before, you know what I mean? But the Jewish people that lived around the lake, they left, and, and they, some black African-Americans start buying their homes, because uh, my sister bought one. And um, that changed a little bit, because of the influx of the people, African-Americans coming to work for Boeing, meant that there was a greater population of African-Americans in, in Seattle. This wasn't the first uh, migration of African-Americans. There was one in the, um, right after the Depression. Then there was another one um, um, in another time period and then, of course, the big one when Boeing opened up its factory, you know, and began, people came by the droves. People came by the droves when the wars started from Fort Lewis and Fort Lott, and they stayed here. People came by the droves when Pier 91 and those piers over in the Naval Yard in Bremerton, a lot of them came to Seattle. So, um, the African-American population swelled in these different time periods of migration. And so with the larger population of African-Americans and the white flight, so to speak, to the east side, um, to um, Mercer Island, and then much later to Bellevue, I remember when the floating bridge was built, you know, um, and I also remember when they began to build up Bellevue because there was a ferry that we, whenever we did go to the east side, that was down at the foot of Madison. 
But anyway, to make a long story short, that was a change, you know. Um, more African-Americans came in, more white people left. And when did it start to switch, where more African-Americans were leaving and more Caucasians were It started were to the switch city? in the 80s, uh, because this gentrification process, it was a process. It was almost systemically done, step one, step two, step three. And there were a lot of variables involved. All these these people coming into Seattle who didn't want to have to go all the way across the lake and come back here. And so African-Americans in the central area was prime property. And so the shift started, and Amazon now, you know what I mean? And so ironically, these those folks, you know, it, it just began. And so black people... The older people who owned the homes couldn't pay taxes. The young folks didn't have any money, and so they sold. And realtors really came um, intentionally and said, well, you know, well, we're willing to pay you X number of dollars if you do this, you know, if you sell your home, etc." Some people fell for it, some didn't. And so the demographics begin to shift first to uh, Federal Way, and then Renton, and then Kent. Auburn's just beginning to get more African Americans there. And the reason I know that is because I was, even though I was teaching school at that time, I can recall all of the complaints that parents would bring to the NAACP, this uh, cultural gap between interaction and understanding African-American children and their learning style, which was mainly kinesthetic. And so there were all of these things that, that popped up. What did it feel like to see your friends, family, and neighbors? Sorry, I jumped the gun. I don't know if your family moved. Did your family move as well? My sister moved. had a home built in Kent. First, she was in Seattle. My brother, uh, he bought a, uh, him and his wife bought a home. They divorced. That wasn't the, gentrification wasn't why they moved. And then my, uh, my brother, youngest brother, he rented. So he didn't have a problem. I sold my home, but not because of gentrification. My husband and I divorced. And uh, so didn't impact us directly as it relates to, you know, we just didn't have that issue. But we knew a lot of the families who owned homes. This whole gentrification back in the 80s and 90s was growing and growing and growing. And then all of a sudden you look up. And politically, the 37th district used to be the district which was primarily the central area district. There was gerrymandering going on, racial gerrymandering, as a matter of fact, because they split the 37th district. And then later on, they had another uh, drawing of lines because of population. And they, they put half of the 37th in the 11th district and half in another district. So there was a, a decrease of political a power for African Americans simultaneously. And so 
you know, you look at all of this, and then when I hear people say, oh, they gentrified, oh, they're gentrifying, I said, they have gentrified past tense. And so, you know, it, it pays people to be, you know, it, it's beneficial for people to understand the system that governs them. And that was one of the reasons why, as an American government teacher, a social studies teacher, I keep saying, you know, they emphasize science and math, which is good. But some of these kids, the reason they get in trouble is because they don't understand the system that governs them, because there's not that emphasis on civics and American government and understanding the Constitution, et cetera. In the last five years, Seattle's experienced a tremendous amount of economic and population growth. How has that affected your community? My community is fragmented. I don't believe Seattle has a community of black people. There's, it's a small group of people who, well, there are two, there are two um, groups. There's the impoverished group of black people, and then there are the ones who were wealthy enough to maintain and to hold on to their property. There are a lot of judges, former judges and teachers that still live in Seattle, and they're wealthy. Um, and then there is the, the poor group, the street people that are on the streets. And a, a lot of them are still in Seattle. But I've noticed that after the gentrification process, that they began to, uh, after most of the poor African Americans were moved out, they began to accommodate, if you will, the white poor. I think, too, when they closed down and they changed the policy of the uh, mental illnesses, mental hospitals, they closed a lot of that down. Those people are out on the streets. And so they've been victimized, so to speak. And even though there's a lot of wealth in Seattle, I look at it through two perspectives. As an African-American, I don't see any of their wealth uh, in Seattle. I'm focusing in on Seattle uh, being available to African-Americans. So for non-black residents of Seattle who cherish diversity in the history of African-Americans in Seattle and want to maintain that going through to the future. Do you have a message as to what they could do to make sure that there continues to be a place for black people in Seattle? I would say for those people who understand the, the wealth of diversity, for them to be active in um, policies, city policies, for them to uh, be proponents for maintaining the culture, culture and heritage uh, of African Americans in the city, to get on boards, neighborhood boards, if they're still living in Seattle, and be active in that regard. Um, decisions are made, and if there's no one there to speak on behalf of what people want that is inclusive as opposed to being exclusive, nothing will change. 
Um, I would hope that um, the schools and people who are uh, currently have children in the schools, get the PTAs, um, or students in the AP classes would, um, according to the new structure for graduating, as part of their community requirement, would reach out and get involved. Um, so it all boils down to people having an understanding and a love for all human beings, regardless of their color, regardless of their culture, and having a desire to see equality and the Constitution fulfilled for all people. It's those young people and older people or middle-aged people who have that understanding and that love for humanity that will make a difference. Reverend, thank you very much for your time and perspective. I really appreciate hearing your voice today. Austin and Beaumonti are just two of thousands of people who are choosing to leave our growing city. To understand how the city thinks about outbound migration during Seattle's population boom, join me as I sit down with Sam Asefa. I am here at Seattle Municipal Tower with the director of the Office of Planning and Community Development, Sam Asefa. Sam, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Why don't you start by briefly telling me a little bit about yourself? So I am um, originally from Ethiopia. I left uh, when I was 16. I lived in many different places before ending up in the U.S., including Kenya, Italy, uh, and then here in Chicago, San Francisco, Boulder, Colorado, and then Seattle now. So I have been doing city planning work for the last 20, almost 30 years that started out in architecture previously. And tell me a little bit about your role and what the role of the Office of Planning and Community Development is. This is a new office uh, uh, that Mayor Murray created in 2016 uh, as a, an ex executive office that is leading the city's planning process in an integrated fashion. So the OPCD, my office, is charged with helping coordinate infrastructure investments citywide in a very coordinated way, but also looking at issues of equity as we grow. Uh, as you know, there's significant uh, growth in Seattle over the last few years, but we're more focused on how we get ahead of the next 20 years of projected growth. So this office is charged with addressing the future planning of the city and addressing some of the challenges. And what are some of the initiatives that your office has implemented in your short time here that you're most excited about? Well, so we're moving forward with one of the biggest initiatives uh, that this office is helping coordinate, which is the housing affordability and livability agenda. Uh, that's one of the big challenges for Seattle is housing shortage. So the mayor has taken a very bold step in terms of addressing that and targeted 50,000 units of housing over the next 10, 15 years, 20,000 of them to be affordable. So recently we passed uh, legislation allowing the mandatory housing affordability requirement uh, for the first time in Seattle's history. Private development of both commercial and residential will be required to have a mandatory uh, affordable housing either built 
as part of the project that they're building or uh, pay in lieu fee so that the department the housing office of housing can actually create affordable housing citywide so i'm very proud that that happened since i came here and what's the thought process behind including the commercial space in that plan as well? Well, the thought process is that any development has some impact uh, and creates uh, a need and demand. Uh, people, a lot more people work here, uh, then there's a need for housing. So uh, we're trying to capture sort of a fair share of um, addressing the housing challenges through um, the growth we're experiencing both on commercial and uh, residential development. So there's some uh, nexus there, and as a result, the requirement for affordable housing provision. And as you've mentioned, we've grown a lot, but we're also scheduled to grow uh, even further over the next uh, decades or so. Yeah. Uh, what do you see as the biggest opportunity associated with the economic and population growth that's happening here in the region? Sure. So there are lots of opportunities. Uh, one, uh, sort of if, you look, if you look at the bigger picture over the last 50, 60 years, there's been significant urban flight that was damaging cities both economically, culturally, uh, environmentally. So sprawl was kind of the norm uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, whether it's Detroit, uh, Cleveland, uh, even Seattle, you know, loss of population. That has kind of flipped the other way over the last 25 years. Cities like Seattle that have significant resources, infrastructure, uh, um, beautiful context, but also talent are becoming attractive. Uh, and as, as a result, more people are moving here and the economy is growing in cities. The question, that's the advantage. The question is how do we then capture that economic growth to address many of the challenges that we face today, but most importantly, how do we get ahead of it in the future to address some of the future challenges? But the economic growth is um, um, a significant benefit that we now have the opportunity to build the infrastructure to get us to, uh, to make Seattle competitive um, place in the future because the economy at some point is going to turn down. It's, it's cyclical. So we're capturing that benefit so that we plan for the next generation and the next um, uh, several years. Years. So, and the other advantage is really thinking about the Im 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 carbon footprints of cities. The more compact we are, the more concentrated we are, the less we use per capita of infrastructure investments. What do you see as the biggest challenge for your office? The growth that happened over the last few uh, 15 years, 20 years in, in Seattle happened at a much faster rate than most other cities. Uh, and as a result, I think unfortunately, um, this is not putting a blame, but we really as a city have not captured uh, uh, enough of that growth to direct to address some of the challenges of affordability, displacement, uh, inequity, uh, which was part of it. And now the challenge uh, for my office is one, how do we catch up with that? And two, how do we then put in place policies now so that we don't repeat some of the mis mistakes that we've had in the past? In other words, 
just imagine if over the last 15 years with the growth, if we had mandatory housing affordability requirement, we would have had significant amount of affordable housing in place today. Now, would not solve all the pro problems that we had, but I don't think the housing crisis would have been as much uh, as it is today. So my ch the challenge is how do we catch up and how do we then put in place um, policies that will uh, get us ahead rather than react to uh, some of the impacts of, um, of you know the positive growth. So that's one challenge. And the other is um, kind of trying to think in new ways as a city and as an organization. And in the next two years, in three years, there will be so many new technologies and ideas that are going to impact how we use the city, how we move about, um, how we communicate, how we work. So we have to be agile. An office like my mine has to be agile, and we need to uh, be able to respond quickly rather than kind of a slow-moving planning planning agencies. You say you're, you're looking to plan ahead. Uh, are there any trends in the data from looking back that are worrisome to you? Well, so the economic gap and disparity is the biggest worry, um, and, and it has sort of multiple uh, um, manifestations of that. This is obviously a national trend and a global trend as well. The rich are getting very, very rich. The poor are getting poorer. The middle is pretty much um, impacted significantly. So when you look at data at all levels, it's the middle that is being, uh, that, that, that is the biggest challenge. The same thing in housing, for example. Uh, the very rich can find housing that they can afford easily, significant amount of are there in the market. The very, very poor, to a certain extent, kind of, uh, you know, find housing through city, um, state, federal programs, uh, but the middle is, has very, very little choice. Uh, workforce housing is a big, big challenge. So uh, addressing that through policies that both understand sort of the supply and demand aspect of it, but also government intervention in which we need to figure out how to sort of fill the gap, the missing middle. Uh, that, that is a huge, um, a huge challenge. Any ideas as to how to solve that challenge? Uh, well, so at HALA is one of them, but we have multiple other sort of uh, policy and uh, objectives. The city has passed a number of levies about transportation. Uh, which citizens have come through again and again. So that would be a great resource that we're going to use in the next few years to address you know, transportation issues for people who work in the city. Um, if you drive less and take more transportation, it does affect your, um, uh, it does affect affordability of housing. Oftentimes we don't make that linkage, that transportation, the further away you are, not only it takes you longer time, but it costs a lot more for transportation. So uh, transportation investment actually mitigates some of that, and for the most part, it helps the middle income. More supply also creates less competition for the few resources that we have uh, on housing. So, uh, and, and the other is, you know, are there other creative ways to 
reduce the cost of even uh, housing for the middle income by a number of putting a number of policies in place. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that we are focusing on in terms of addressing you know, some of the challenges. We're not going to get it right, um, but at least there's a bold vision to, um, to try and test these. Uh, we have a huge concern in our displacement and losing our African-American citizens here. We have a large immigrant community here over the last 20 years. Uh, our big focus for my office is how do we address equity uh, through you know, race and social justice lens and target our resources so that we mitigate some of the displacement. On that note, several people have said that they used to have minority-owned businesses, and when they were younger, they'd be able to look up at that owner and say, I, I could do that, and that's something I could aspire to. And with the growth and the change in Seattle, the, the trend that you're speaking of is being felt by some of the people at a micro level, that they're seeing the, the business owners being replaced. Are there any policies underway or ideas as to how to encourage more minority businesses so that minority youth could see that they could also aspire to run a business in the city? Yeah, so the first step is to actually uh, stop the bleeding, you know, to how do we retain the ones that are here already? And we have, and we're working with Office of Economic Development to look at small business uh, support and assistance. Uh, I mentioned the initial fund for equitable development, uh, $16 million. We're going to use that in a way to help some of the businesses or some of the what are called the place-based projects, community-initiated projects that they believe in Central District or the neighborhood groups in the Rainier Beach and the Chinatown International District that they initiated based on what they feel is the most important way to uh, retain their businesses, their culture, and their residences. So if they stay there, uh, the idea is that their kids and the generations to come would at least have a continuation of the diversity that the city has so that they uh, can continue to work. We just a couple of days ago, we were meeting with very exciting younger people who are really engaged in the central district coming to the city and talking to us about proposed developments that would significantly benefit you know, them as young African-Americans living in the city and asking, uh, we had five directors sitting there and listening and talking to them in terms of what we can do to uh, support that and then leverage some of the resources that we have to get both private, state, federal money specifically targeted to retention of businesses, retention of uh, cultural activities and uh, and giving housing choices so that we mitigate displacement through those, you know, th through those actions. So if you can get a message out to uh, a member of a minority community here in Seattle about what they could do to facilitate or help your efforts to keep Seattle a racially diverse city, what would you tell them? Well, a number of things. Continue to put our feet on the fire, uh, that get engaged and uh, we want to be as transparent as uh, possible in terms of telling people honestly things that we can do and things that we can't do. And city government alone is not going to solve the problems that we have. It's, it's huge. Now, having, and, and so we need their engagement.
If you can get a message out to maybe a member of the racial majority uh, who might be hesitant or nervous about uh, discussing or talking about race, but wants to make sure that Seattle does in fact maintain or increases the diversity here, what would you say that, that they can do? Fundamentally, that usually comes, you know, sympathy and understanding comes with more engagement and knowing uh, what the others, and I would expand it to say not just only the, you know, the non-racial uh, majority, but anyone I would encourage to, you know, have a meal with a Muslim woman or somebody that you don't normally uh, hang out with or understand. And it's my own experience. It's those kinds of engagements, you know, in Lublin, Poland and hanging out with people who's never left there for, you know, never been out to, for me to understand how and where they come from so that you have that sympathy in, um, and when you're dealing with solving problems collectively, then you can understand. So for the majority, what I say is go to the Ethiopian restaurants or Somali restaurants and engage and meet people, taste their food, uh, and that changes you. And that's, that's one. I, I, at the end of the day, it comes down to sort of human interactions and knowledge. The biggest problem um, that I've seen in my profession over time is in the absence of you know knowledge or in the absence of informations information people make stuff up and that becomes a reality and it's true at many different levels and that is i think the most dangerous thing for society because you're making things up that may not be true then you believe it uh, how you see other groups or other people then you're not you're less likely to support anything that's going to benefit those groups and you don't even make the connection that by doing that, you're actually helping yourself as well. Anything the city can do or is doing to encourage more of these human interactions that you think would, would be beneficial to both sides? Absolutely. So a lot of the engagements that we have um, through not only the planning process, but, but Office of Immigration to go out and engage with the different communities that even the different immigrant groups could actually have uh, more interaction. A lot of the work that the Department of Neighborhoods is doing to bring multiple people around planning issues or other engagements are a way um, to get people to actually talk to each other. Do you have any concluding thoughts on growth in Seattle and the future as you see it? Yeah, so growth, I know it brings up a lot of uh, um, fear about change. Um, what I would say is that those are real issues you know the change the place the character is, uh, is changing uh, when you look at it in the bigger context or when we room, remove ourselves and go back 70 years ago 60 years ago 50 years ago 20 years ago change constantly does happen uh, by most major measures i think seattle has never been better in many ways but it is very hard when you're in the midst of this uh, disruptive change that is taking place and that we need to figure out how uh, to remove ourselves from that you know uh, uh, fear and figure out how to get ahead of it and shape the change that is happening um, building a wall around the city is not an option right uh, the question is how best we shape the future that 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 is coming um, 
and we need everybody to, to, you know, to take part and to be part of that. Sam, thank you very much for your time and sharing your perspective. I appreciate hearing your voice today. Thank you. You're welcome. It was good talking to you, Jeff. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have you moved out of Seattle? Are you thinking about saying goodbye to the city? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, to share your story. You can also discuss your reactions to these interviews on Seattle Growth Podcast's Facebook page. I've enjoyed seeing how the perspectives in the podcast compare to your experiences. I'd like to thank the Twitter user at IsaacAD1, also Nick DeTori and JP Lowe for their ongoing engagement in the growth conversation on Twitter. I also have to say thanks to Victor Balta, Rebecca Gorley, and Peter Kelly from the University of Washington News and Information Office, and to Mike Bosey and Ed Cromer from the Foster School of Business. They've each helped get Seattle Growth Podcast heard by you and listeners throughout our region. Next week's episode gives historical context on the changes happening in Seattle. You'll hear more from today's guest, the Reverend Dr. Phyllis Ratcliffe-Bomonti. History is foundational. There's an old saying, if you don't know where you've been, how can you know where you're going? You'll hear from a researcher at the University of Washington who gives insight into the migration patterns throughout the years in Seattle. I would say the biggest historical policies that have impacted our patterns of uh, segregation migration in Seattle goes back to the early 1930s with the FHA loan. Um, basically not allowing certain groups uh, to live in certain parts of the neighborhood that thrived throughout time. And you will hear from Professor Carl Livingston. We have actually planned for a lot of the changes that we're getting, and we've planned it in a way in which it was not sensitive and, and humane towards people of darker color, especially the descendants of slaves and segregation. Please subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so you can be the first to hear next week's episode and the episodes after that. Until then, I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the third season of Seattle Growth Podcast.